Good morning. I'm excited to be up here. I'm honored to be up here on the stage at Paramount. I've seen uh, some bands here before. I've seen some speakers here before. One of the things that's true is every week I sit down there with either Jim or Scott's script in case something goes haywire in the video. So of course it happened this week when I'm up here. Um, but Jim wanted to hear, you know, he wanted you to hear about Easter twice. So we got that in. Um, super excited to be here. I've always wanted my entire life to be a stand-up comedian. And some of you guys know me. You know that I'm the only one that laughs at my own jokes and that's okay. Last night, Jay Leno was here and I'm invoking a 12-hour rule, that means that Jay Leno opened for me, which is killer. I bet he was all right. I'm, I'm hoping to do better. I'm gonna laugh at my own jokes because that's what I do. Um, welcome to Daylight Savings Time. My son told me last night that Ben Franklin uh, came up with the idea. I hate Ben Franklin. He's the worst person ever. So, but uh, all that to say, uh, I'm super, super excited to be up here. A lot, for a lot of years, I, I've told my friends that uh, being a backup quarterback in the NFL would be the best job in the world. So just follow me for a second here. They almost are never called to do anything that anybody sees, right? They practice with the team. They're a true uh, professional football player, but they get to just sit there and take in a bunch of really, really cool stuff. So I was going to say I'm a less handsome Brock Osweiler, but now I know everybody hates him. So uh, I'm going to say I'm a less handsome Mark Sanchez, and, and I pray for you guys that that is the backup quarterback for the Broncos. My job here uh, downtown is really uh, to help us take care of each other. We're six months into this campus. Uh, so some of the stuff that I do is I meet with people. Uh, I talk with people about some of the best and worst things going on in their lives. I help us get ready for this thing uh, every Sunday morning. And some of you guys probably don't know this, but like our, our tech director, Matt Foster, who's back here and he'll probably hide right now. He gets, uh, gets up at like three o'clock in the morning every Sunday. He's an amazing, amazing man that makes this thing happen from week to week. And I get the pleasure of leading an amazing team of people like him, Diana that you saw up here, who is one of the biggest gifts in the world to me. Uh, we have some guys upstairs, Travis and Melissa and Crystal, worship leader like Sean, who's here most of the time that, that I get the pleasure of working with. And out there in the lobby, Matt Nam, who's, who's one of my closest friends and, and also just an amazing, amazing man. Uh, it's my pleasure to serve alongside them every week. And down here, uh, just six months into what we're doing, I'm really excited because what, what we're looking at here is a big opportunity to see God move. And I know I've talked about this a little bit, maybe if you were here way back when we did preview nights and stuff like that, but I really believe that what we have here is the chance to take some really, really good DNA, some really good values and transfer them to a new setting. And so that's what we've been chasing after for six months is this vision of reaching everyone that we can with the awesome love of Jesus. And the way I look at it is this, Flatirons has some really cool values that are our DNA. And I don't know how many of you guys grew up with siblings. I have two sisters and they're beautiful and successful, but I'm the only one that Jay Leno opened for. So I, I got that going for me. But we were raised by the same parents, but we're three very different people. Some of you have raised kids or, you know, most of us grew up with siblings and we know what that's like. The same values were there. The same things were taught to us by our parents, but we, we kind of just grew up a little bit differently. The truth is that in this place, what we're going to keep doing is we're going to keep submitting to biblical authority that the Bible really is real, has a lot of stuff to say about our real lives to us uh, in this place every week. But as we do that, we're going to pursue grace and truth and authentic community and look for a way to, to look at other people that says, me too, let's go in this together. Let's go alongside each other in the, in the best and the worst and bring people up in, in faith through that. We're going to use our gifts to create excellent environments in this place week after week where people can see who Jesus really is. And that's, that's all we're doing week to week. The truth is this, is that I've been places before where people say this, but it's just not true. But our, our very ethic and our very prayer every week is that this would be true. Our doors are wide open. We come from different places. We struggle with different things. But I, I pray every week that people that are all over the map spiritually will find their way into this building to find out a couple really key things, some truths that will change their life, which is this. God is for you. 
He doesn't hate you and he wants the best for you. So six months in is kind of the marker that I want to place this morning to say, that's what we're chasing after. In our initial months, we've had some really great weeks and some really trying weeks. We've had music go out. We've had crazy things happen. But God's going to do something here week after week like we've seen him do. And he's going to keep doing it. So as we strive to create community in this place that's brand new, I'm really excited with Easter a couple weeks away to to get the chance to say, let's invite people to come and see not what we can do, not what great music we can play or, or whatever the messages look like, but that Jesus is real and that he's moving in this theater that's been here for a really long time. And every week he has something really great because he's really great. Cool. So that's my introduction. And I think it's a really great place to start because two weeks ago, Jim shared a truth with us that I've been thinking about over and over again for those two weeks. And it's this, the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us. It lives in us, which means a few things, but primarily of this, we aren't the negative messages that maybe we throw on ourselves or that the labels that other people apply to us, the things that drag us down. What we are is we are the redeemed children of the living God that created the universe. And we get to tap into the power that raised Christ from the dead. And we get to live in a different confidence, a different confidence that's rooted in the faith that Jesus defeated sin and death. And he rules over our death and our sin. So he, he is greater, not just than the things that I face, but the things that I think I am. And he is capable of taking me out of all of it. The word confidence in the Greek is defined as the act of speaking freely all that one thinks or pleases. Think about that for a second. So I, I think and please a lot of things. I don't know how much confidence that is. But I know this, when I put it in the context of my faith, that, that when Jesus is what pleases me, when I, when I believe and I truly live out my life that Jesus is superior, when those are the things that my life is based on, I'm able to speak freely of what he means to me and what he does for me. So when I'm in that space, in that right mindset, I'm able to say, I am confident in Christ and nothing else. And, and this series, we've been building off of that idea. This is where they started. God is a good father. And, and that's new to a lot of us. And some of us only know a father, you know, the one we grew up with, some, some good, some bad, some in between. Some of us know only a really awful father, maybe an absent father. Some of us know abusive fathers. And so when we hear God as a, as a good father, some of us have naturally stumbling blocks in place. Where you say, man, if that's what God's like, I don't know if I want it. See, but when I, when I, when I look through God at the lens as a perfect father, I think of all the things that, that I wish I could be as a dad, all the things maybe I wish I had growing up. And I know that when I look at God that way, that a few things are true. He fiercely loves me and protects me. And even he approves of me. And if you're like me, that might be hard. He approves of me. For some of us, that is so far outside the, the norm of, uh, you know, the, the realm of norm that we can't even fathom it. And, and maybe it shakes you to the very core of your being to sit there and think for a second, man, I have a father who's not only perfect, but who loves me, even though I'm not. That's really hard. And I have no doubt that some of us sit in that space this morning. As you sit in that chair, you think, yeah, that's, that's really hard for me to grasp. The, the truth is this. Jesus removes our shame He makes us whole and he allows us to rest in that same power that he wields over life and death and to walk in freedom, which is what Jim looked at last week. So to catch you up, uh, if you missed any of the weeks before this or this is your first time here, that's what we've been walking through in this series. We can say say all those things are things that a good father does for his kids. And, you know, I don't know if that for you. For me, that's a lot to process. When I sit back and think about, especially this concept of real freedom, I think a lot about that movie Jim talked about last week, Room. 
Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. I'm, I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but watch the trailer. It's mostly the same stuff in there. But Room's this movie about this woman who gets kidnapped as a teenager and put into this shed. And she's there for years. She has, she has a child um, and he grows up in that room. That's all he ever knows. All he has ever known is that shed. So when they are able to get out of there, when they break free, when they're rescued, all he ever knew was that tiny room. And after, as, time, as time goes on, a few days, a week or whatever, he looks at his mom, he says, can we go back to the room? Can we go back to that place? And for us as adults, looking at that with the life experience that we've had, we look at that and go, that is the worst request ever. But the reason I keep thinking of it is because it reminds me so much of my own life. I, I want to go back to things all the time that I know aren't best for me. The places that I know that I've been taken out of, that I know are destructive, the, the things that I crawl back to over and over again that I know aren't good for me. It's because they're familiar. It's because it's all I ever knew. And that even though I'm trying to stumble away from it and get past these things in my life, that the opposite is what I chase after so often because I know it. Plus, I don't know about you guys, but for me, when I'm living in some of my worst moments, I have excuses built in. I can automatically say, well, that's not my fault. I'm just like that. Or, or maybe, and, and preferably, that's somebody else's fault. They're just like that. And, and this falling on me because they're messed up and not me. But the truth is this, is that I'm just a slave to that stuff. I'm stuck in that room. And, and every single day, I have to remind myself, and this last week I've been doing this every day, Jesus sets me free. I can get out of that space and out of that room, out of that confining, tiny little worldview and see that there's so much more. So this morning, all that, all that stuff, all these places we walked through in this series, I want to start by just looking at that real quick. Jesus offers us this. He's a good father. He makes us clean and removes our shame. We can find real rest in him. His power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, is available to us, and he sets us free. Just look at that list for a minute. So I'm going to ask you this morning to adjust to a mindset. We all know the right church answers. We all know the right, the right things we're supposed to say. Some of us walk in here and we're like, I don't like the church answers, and you're going to find out pretty soon that I'm with you. But listen, what if all of that stuff on that screen it's true. Not just some of it, not just for other people, but what if everything up there is true? Say, I'm wired as a skeptic. I know some of you are too. Some people call me cynical. One of my best friends called me cynical a few weeks ago. That was really mean. I thought that was a really mean thing to say to me. I think I'm just critical because I care a lot, right? But maybe I am. I'm wired to automatically question everything that's put in front of me. So I'm going to ask you, even if you're wired like that or worse, just for a moment this morning, if you consider that that entire list is true for you, about your life, about where you're walking and what you're dealing with, not just generically, not just Bible answers, for you. For instance, I've been, I've been saying this to myself all week. Do I really want to be free? So I think in my head a lot and maybe even, you know, bargain with God a lot about being free and say, take this away from me. Let me, let me live into real freedom. But the whole week I've been looking at things where I go, man, I think I really love being imprisoned to mindsets because of the excuses, because of whatever I can do to get through. And this series, we've been looking at this book of the Bible called Hebrews. And Hebrews is a letter written to early converts to the Christian faith out of Judaism. And chapter 10 starts off by talking about a shadow, which is really this. They're talking about a law, about rules, about morality that helps us live a better life that these converts had spent their entire life living in. If you just follow this rule, God will love you. If you just sacrifice this thing the right way, God will forgive you. And the writer is trying to make it clear, actually what's true for you now, 
as a follower of Jesus is that none of that's real. It's just a shadow of what could be. And they say it like this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the writer is saying that trying to gain the things that Jesus offers us automatically, that he holds out that list, instead of trying to gain that stuff by rule keeping, by moralistic living or being a good person, I don't even know what being a good person means, just leads to an imitation life. You're chasing after something that's already been given to you in a different way. It's fake security and our flawed abilities. So only Jesus is able to accomplish any of that or to offer us any of that. There's others that are good. I know a lot of really good people. I don't know anybody that I'd be willing to say, you've got it figured out. Let me follow you every single moment. Because only Jesus can perfect us. And the law, the rules, those things aren't bad, right? I, I was a youth pastor for 18 years. And when I give that message, I always have students that be like, great, now I can do whatever I want because rules are stupid, right? I'm not saying that. They're good, but they're a shadow. They're, they're just the background. See, if I see a shadow, I'm curious about what made it, right? And, or Peter Pan, the, the shadow's me, but it's also, it's not me. There's something else going on. The law's not bad. It's just that there's something better. In Greek, the, the, the Hebrews passage here uses the word skia, which essentially just means form without any substance. So the law's a good idea that can't deliver, right? We're in campaign season. I'm not going to get political. I'm going to try to offend both sides at once. Trump and Sanders are both form without substance, right? They're, they have promises that they probably can't fully deliver on, even if they're the best politician in the world. I should have used uh, House of Cards. Frank Underwood has a bunch of promises that he can kill you to deliver on. But, but the only thing that he can do is promise, right? The, the Greek word icon is added in here as well. And it's a word that means this, detailed reproduction. So the shadow is a detailed reproduction. So Hebrews right here is saying that turning to ourselves, which is very tempting, to those we look up to, to our heroes, to politicians, to celebrities, to, to, to whoever, to our own power or the power of people, instead of the power of anything except for the name of Jesus, just leads to a reproduction, to a false thing, to a form without any substance. And honestly, it makes me think about this. It makes me think about going just about anywhere in public these days and just watching people live life on their cell phone, right? And I'm guilty of this too. I love Yahtzee with friends. Don't get me started. But, but uh, a, a couple months ago, I was here. I was like right back there in front of the soundboard where you guys are, uh, seeing a show. And this dude in front of me the entire time has his phone out recording the stage, right? He's sitting, I don't know what that is, 30 yards away from, from the band that he came, they paid all this money to see. And he just kept taking pictures or turning around and taking selfies with the band in the background or, you know, videos of the thing or whatever. So he watched, honestly, almost the entire concert on this like three, he had like an iPhone 4, it was really sad. But he like on, a, on this really small phone, instead of just watching the real thing right in front of him. And so like, I, I'm stoked. It's, uh, you guys probably, uh, probably nobody else likes it, but Sufjan Stevens is playing right here. He's on this same keyboard spot that Whitney was just on and dude's watching it on his sad little 10-year-old phone, you know? And I kept thinking, man, after about 600 of those pictures, you're probably pretty good, right? Uh, there was a guy passed out drunk next to me that I think got just about as much of the show as this guy because the guy was there and he kind of watched the show. He kind of saw it, right? But what he was really watching was a shadow of it. It was form without substance. It was a version of what he was seeing, but it was just a little bit different. 
And I was talking this week about this, this story with Jim and he brought up a really good point. We do that kind of thing because we want to preserve a memory that reminds us that life can be good sometimes. Sometimes that's all we have. Like, man, I, I love this show I'm seeing or this moment that I'm in. I really want to capture it. But I don't know about you, but every time I go on vacation and see something really awesome and take a picture of it, it never does justice to it later. I was just in Africa for two weeks with Jim and I took pictures of all these monkeys that were literally flying right over my head. You can't see any of them in the pictures, which is a huge bummer because people are like, yeah, you saw monkeys. I'm sure you did, right? But I did. They were there. They were real. And I, all I'm ever going to have, honestly, to remember it by is those memories, right? And they're good, but those are still a shadow too. So, so often we forfeit truly great things for detailed reproductions, for something that's fake. It's a fake version of something good and we're cheating ourselves. It's like, um, you know, I, I was a youth pastor for 18 years, like I said. It's like the kids who went over to the dollar store and bought like the, the $1 cologne, right? They splash it all over themselves because they think the girls love that kind of thing. They don't if you're in middle school. They hate it and so do we. But, but it might smell okay for a minute. It ruins your clothes. Probably you're going to have some kind of funky rash and we all got enough problems like that when we were in middle school, right? It's just fake. Maybe it's okay, but it's nowhere near as good as it could be. So what Jesus has done for us isn't something just to be glad for for a minute and then to gloss over and move on. So the significance is like waking up in color after living in black and white for years and years. And I know some of you aren't there yet and some of you are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow after Jesus. But for me, when I was 18 years old, I was in a dorm room in Greeley, which is one of the most horrible places in the world. If you've never been there, don't go. But I figured out who Jesus was. And a couple of things didn't happen, okay? The sky didn't open and all of a sudden all my problems went away. Morgan Freeman didn't sit down next to me and whisper the secrets of the world to me. He did that later, it was pretty cool. But, but I did feel like I just woken up in color. Stuff made more sense. And in light of, of looking at Jesus instead of this shadow, I saw real life for the first time. So to grab a hold of real life, and this offer for a perfect sacrifice in place of my flawed attempts to be good is the greatest gift I ever found. I spent years and years just looking for the right rule to follow, the right people to look after, the right person to try to be like. And all it did was lead me to sadness and the, the same depression over and over again. Those are things I still struggle with. And it says I will continue to struggle in depression and hurt and sadness. But the truth is this, it's the difference between that shadow, struggling against something like that, the form without substance, the abstract, and struggling against a palpable, tangible, real life. See, life so often makes me look down. I don't know about you guys, but I'll look down. Maybe it's at my phone because I feel comfortable and, and like nothing can bother me. It's really one of the greatest horrible creations is always having a phone around. Like I used to always be like in awkward situations and I lean up against a wall or something to fall over. And now it's just like, I'm on my phone and people like me, so leave me alone, right? But maybe that's what I do. I drop my head because my confidence is gone. And I spend some time really trying to believe that, that I'm okay, right? I, I miss the stuff that God put in front of me, but I'm okay. And the Psalms say it like this. At one point it says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Today really is about this. We can lift our head in confidence to see what God's doing. Instead of missing it and chasing after things that are false, we can lift our head and be confident that he has something better for us. See, when one of my kids drops their head in shame or sadness, usually caused by some angry outburst by me, my job as a parent and my goal as a dad is to lift it back up and to reaffirm their understanding that this father loves them. 
right? That I'm on their side and that even in the roughest of times, I'm there. And I'm not the best father. God's a perfect father and he does that. This opportunity that this entire book called Hebrews builds up to is this, and I'm gonna look at it again. And all of those ways that Jesus has moved and worked on our behalf, which are these, he's a good father. He makes us clean and removes our shame. We can find real rest in him. His power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us and he sets us free. In all those ways, what we get is this, a tangible result of those things stacking up in confidence that we can take and harness in our relationship with God through Jesus. So what's that mean? What's that mean? Confidence in Christ means that we can approach God, the creator of the universe that made all things, seen and unseen, even at our worst, our most run down. And because Jesus promises this, us this, we are clean and whole only through him. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible puts it like this. It says, it's in Jesus, and it's implied it's only in Jesus that we find out who we really are and what we're supposed to be living for who we really are and what we're supposed to be living for. It's only in him that I can ever really know what my life's about and what it's supposed to be used for. I can chase after a lot of other things. and They can even be good, but it's never gonna be what it's supposed to be. I know some of you might disagree with that or think, man, that's awfully exclusive, but I really believe it's true. And in discovering what that looks like, it's actually freedom and not restriction. It actually lets us and allows us to be everything we are. And for me, it's the difference between anxiety and absolute real life. It's a chase after what I was made to do. Hebrews is trying to convince us of the reliability of that truth. All right, so listen to how it said here. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So what Hebrews is trying to set up here is a truth with at least three immediate, immediate applications. The truth is this, that barrier between us and God, the curtain that exists between God's perfection and me, that the truth is this, it's only torn down by Jesus's death. I, I think that there's a couple of things true for me here. One is this, I often reflect on Jesus's life and what he taught and the good things that he did way more than I think about his death. And maybe at Easter or, you know, every once in a while, Mel Gibson will put a movie out and that makes me really think about that. But his life are the the things that I most often chase after because they're they're really good and it makes me feel really good about myself to read them sometimes. But the truth is this, Jesus's work came together and culminated in that death and resurrection. And we're close to Easter. Without that, death and sin don't get defeated. Jesus had a really great life up until then. That act is what saves us. But so often I, I, don't, I don't really think about that. And I let that curtain remain intact. And instead of seeing everything that God is and everything, every way that he's available to me through Jesus, I see that formless shadow. I see that reproduction, that ripoff version of a life that I try to offer myself by being good or chasing after something else. And I don't need God for that. So I don't have to rely on him for that. I can go after that on my own. But what Hebrews shares with us is this, is that full assurance and the fact that Jesus is who he says he is and he's going to deliver on every single one of his promises, which is what we call faith here. Because that's what, that's what I need and that's what I need to chase after. That leads to a new kind of confidence. Here's what Hebrews communicates clearly in this regard. And some of this is not very popular, but, but it's just true. The first one is this. Jesus is the only way to God. The only way to God. 
not being good, not voting for the right person. I don't, there's not one of those. Not recycling, not being nice, nothing else. Nothing else. Jesus is the only way to God. The Bible describes it as a narrow and honestly difficult path in a world that constantly and routinely searches for a broad and easy path. His way is difficult and this. It means that it real, like realizing that it's true, that everything he says should be taken seriously, that should alter the course of my life. That should change the way that I think. That should alter the way that I live. My, de- my decisions, they, sh- they should look different. My heart should change. Uh, Jesus shows us the way to God and, and we get to choose whether or not we're going to follow. If sin equals slavery, which I believe it does, and Jesus is the only one, Jesus is the only one that's willing to pay the ultimate price to buy us out, logically that means he's the only way to live. And I haven't found any other way. And I personally, I, I don't really believe that there's anybody on the planet that I can follow that will get me anywhere close to that place. Second, and, we, and we've been looking at this all throughout the series, but it's going to get repeated here again. In chapter 10, number two is this. Jesus is the high priest. There's no higher. See, we don't need a priest. We don't need anyone besides Jesus between us and God. No matter how nice their robes are, how stained their glasses, no matter what, no priest is between you and God. Only Jesus is. And that might not sound like a big deal, but some of you are nodding or internally you're like, yeah, I, I know because you've been taught this throughout your life. I have some friends that grew up in different faith traditions and they tell me sometimes after church, I don't know, did that count? We didn't take communion. I didn't say any, uh, you know, any magic spells or anything like that. And I have to remind them and, and myself that it does. It takes us a wild transition out of guilt and to fully realize that the only high priest is Jesus himself who invites us in to real life. What Jesus, Jesus invites us in to not a reproduction and to not a ripoff, but into real life. He shows us the way, he introduces us to the presence of God, and then we get to follow. And the third thing is this, and it's all dependent on this point, only Jesus, only Jesus can cleanse us. A lot of things can make us feel better for a minute, but only Jesus can cleanse us. So let's look at verse 1022 again real quick. Because that high priest bridges that divide between God and us, so what he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That forgiveness that we experience from Jesus' death and resurrection allows us to be fully assured, not just pretty sure, but fully assured that our faith in him will lead us to God. And honestly, that's a huge promise. I don't know how many things in your life you can say you're fully assured of. I I don't have a ton. Most of the things, at least in my life, have an inherent risk with them. And often I think of my faith the same way. I, I kind of hedge my bets and I try to figure out, hey, what, what's the best way that I can approach life right now? And according to Hebrews, I'm just wrong. We have full assurance in Jesus that we can approach God, be cleansed, and continue to live. Hebrews describes faith like this. Now, faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Next week, Jim's going to spend his entire sermon in that passage. But for now, I want you to think about that. That assurance of things that you hope for, the conviction, the absolute like feeling deep down inside of you that the things you can't see are real. All of that, when you, when you put that together with the freedom that we've been talking about, that cleansing of sin that, that takes us out of slavery like Jim looked at last week, why would we not walk confidently towards God? Knowing that he is everything he's ever promised and we have the chance to continue to follow after Jesus that didn't stay dead but instead came back to life to offer us something new. Because this is where all this leads. 
The, the title of this section in the, the Bible that I, I spent most of my life reading, the NIV says this. Hebrews 10 is a call to persevere. A call to continue in a course of action, even in the face of difficulty or with little or no prospect of success. That's what, that's what persevering means. Even when life is at its hardest and is beating us down, to continue to push after the things that we know are true and right is what this entire passage is about. See, the difference in the way that we persevere when we're living a life of faith is that we have assurance and newfound confidence. We know that the ultimate success is found in our forgiveness and, and in things that are eternal and not in circumstances. We have confidence. And I've been looking at that word confidence for a few weeks now. I've had a, a couple weeks where I've just gotten to look at that word and pick it apart. I felt like English class a couple times, but I have some questions surrounding it just in my own life. And, and first is this, what am I confident in? Outside of Jesus, what am I confident in? What would I say I have absolute freedom and full assurance to say and do, right? If that's the definition according to the Greek. I'm not a very confident person to start with. Or I don't know if you are. And I would say this, and in the years that I've been doing ministry, I'd even go so far to say that most people aren't. Some of you right now internally are answering that question like, yeah, maybe I am, I'm not so much. That's not very confident in itself. Most people, I think if they're being honest, would say, not really. I'm not really that confident. I think most people, I'd say this, most people that tell me they are, when I get to know them, I discover they're not. They're just like me. They have self-doubt, right? Insecurities and places in their life where they wish they were more confident, but they're not. And I suspect most of you relate to this, but there's about a million things going on in any given day of my life that shake or outrightly kill my confidence. See, my kids, they don't have this issue. They don't at all. My four-year-old, his name is Smith, is sure, first of all, that he's invincible physically, right? He punched me in the face twice last night. It hurt, right? That's just for starters. It extends all across his life. Last week, our family was playing a board game, which usually is an instant recipe for fighting, right? Doors slamming, people crying, stuff like that. And that's just me. But um, we braved it and we played this game, Trivial Pursuit, which is my favorite game. And they made it for families, which they think they're doing us a favor, but they're not. Um, they have questions for adults. They have questions for kids. I slaughtered those questions for kids, guys. It was amazing. But maybe the boxes are mixed up. I don't know. But for Smith at four, those kids' questions are still way out of his league. He still doesn't understand them. So, and I hope he's not in here. So we started asking him fake questions, right? So we took all the things that he's obsessed with, Star Wars and the Ninja Turtles, and, and he confidently won this game like that. Six straight questions, get me those, those pieces of pie and that Trivial Pursuit thing, and he's done. He won, he left, and we got to play the game for real, right? He confidently knew, and will still tell you today if you ask him, that he defeated us. He soundly beat us down. It never even occurred to him that there was like a pro wrestling level conspiracy going on, right? <laughs> that, that honestly, his confidence was very securely in the fact that he had just beat us all. My, my older kids, they're, they're the same way. My eight-year-old Zane, he will tell you, hey, I'm going to play wide receiver in the NFL, right? Uh, I guess I'll play cornerback if that doesn't work out. And then if you go, well, man, what if those both don't work out? He goes, I guess I'll play pro baseball, right? It doesn't even occur to him there's anything else out there past that. Don't talk to him about odds. Don't do any of that. It doesn't matter. My six-year-old Emmy, she's going to be either Taylor Swift or a movie star. There's nothing else out there. So Taylor Swift Jr. is coming your way. Please buy her record. I want to retire. You know, they're confident. I, I just, I've been wondering all week, watching my kids and the way they operate, when does that go away? Because it does. It's gone away for me. Every single day of my life's a struggle. Someone looks at me wrong, maybe says something to me that's a little bit questionable. I read into it. I start writing a story in my head about what they meant by that. 
And then I, it eats me alive. And I start thinking, man, my bosses are in bad moods or I, you know, whatever. I, I, they walk by me and don't smile. I assume, man, I'm about to get fired. I'm Googling jobs. And really my only skill set outside of this would be, I don't know, 7-Eleven, maybe. I don't even know if they take me. It'd be a good job. But this is the truth. When my wife is sad, I assume she's mad at me. Maybe I feel like I'm not being a good enough husband or father. Or when my kids fight, I think, man, I've messed them up bad, right? They're going to struggle with the same stuff I've struggled with. Even as I wrote this these last couple of weeks, um, I used to teach two or three times a week for years and years of my life. I haven't taught for almost a year. The entire time I just thought, nobody's going to connect with what you're saying. They're just going to stare at you and get up and leave. I saw that one guy. I saw him. <laughs> Check. You know. I'm okay. <laughs> the question for me is this. What rocks my confidence? And then I'm going to ask you, what rocks yours? Because you have a whole different set of things. And I'm not talking about your faith at this level yet. Because we have a whole set of stuff for there too. But just in general, what rocks your confidence as a man or woman? What's the trigger for you? What are the things that send you down that path? And another way of looking at it is this. You've been given freedom from that room, from slavery, from the things that enslave you on a daily basis, but what are the things that make you keep walking back into it? And why do they do that? Why do they do that? See, my, my struggles with self-doubt and, and insecurity, and especially, honestly, in the face of unknown things. And it manifests itself in so many different ways, but it's really this. I feel unliked. I feel disrespected. And ultimately, I feel like people just don't want me around. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can't. I, I look at it this way. I fear being like an extra in this movie called Life when I've always just wanted to be the lead actor. And to be totally honest, it can take me down some pretty dark roads. And when my confidence is rocked or even just completely taken away, I find myself, honestly, I, I'm assuming that everybody around me feels the same way about me. That I'm, I'm, I'm unwanted. I'm just in the way. And so I feel like I'm being dismissed, at least mentally by people, if not outrightly. And I'm just some guy in the background of the shot, the out of focus while the lucky lead actors live a really cool life. And it can paralyze me. It isolates me. And, and it, this is a sick part of me, guys, that actually likes it because it's all I've ever known for almost all of my life. Maybe this sounds familiar to you or maybe you're like right now you're Googling therapist for me, which is great. I will take recommendations. But, but honestly, this is just true for me. And I think it's true for a lot of us in here this morning. I'm just being a little bit vulnerable because I have a microphone. You have a version too. And for you, it's just as poignant. It's just, it's just as close as your skin. You just don't have the chance to do this right now. See, that, that word confidence takes us through in a different word, confide. It's to tell someone a secret in private and to trust that they're not going to tell it to other people. Being vulnerable with somebody that you trust. Confidence with one another looks like being able to open up to share real life and all of its good and all of its ugly and to be real. Maybe for a minute, maybe for a long time with somebody you really trust, but to be real, even with that inherent risk, there it is again, that's involved with it. There is a risk. It's knowing that I'm free to tell you anything and that I have full assurance or I have faith in or I have confidence that you'll hold on to it. And that's not easy. And honestly, in my past experience, it's even harder at church even though it shouldn't be. See, in the last year of my life, I've gotten plugged in with a group of guys that I actually trust, that I can be vulnerable with, that I can look in the eyes and, and, and tell them anything. And I trust these guys. And for the first time in my life, I've actually been like seeking out opportunities to share more. I think they're all probably tired of me at this point. They're like, we get it, you're messed up, right? But it's never even looked like that before. I've been a Christian for about 20 years now and it's never looked like that before. 
And it's, the question I keep asking is why? Church people like to share secrets, don't we? I think this is why. Right? We like to share prayer requests, right? Did you hear about the prayer request for so-and-so? You guys can all share prayer requests about, about a million people. But it's usually just code for gossiping. People break our confidence and it leaves so many of us distrustful and hurting. It's like giving somebody the bullets to, to, to you know, the, the right formula to kill you and handing it to them and it's trusting they're going to hold on to it. And before you know it, they're firing them at you. And, and I've had this in my past. I know a lot of you have too. Church people who told me that I'm not good enough, that, that, that pastors don't have tattoos or whatever, right? That, that, that you look wrong. Yeah, when I was younger, I had hair. So Diana shared that I would shave my head. God did that for me. Thank you, God. But when I was younger, I had hair and it was stuff like, you know, Christians don't dye their hair green, right? Maybe that's true, but I did. And I was. Christians don't act like you do. And that's the one that stings for anybody. Christians don't do that. Good people don't do that. People that are falling after God, they don't act like you. And I've had all those things said to me in my past. I know a lot of us here are, are being cautious and we're six months into a church and we're kind of scared. And I get that. It's scary to, to look at somebody and say, let's start trying to figure out how to do life together because I've been shot so many times by people who held those bullets that I thought cared about me and they just didn't. That I thought would go through anything with me and they left. But one of those opportunities that we have down here is to start looking across the aisle or across the lobby and saying, what if? What if we went after that? Because Hebrews, this book, it suggests a different path than is typical. Building off this concept of assurance, it says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised us is faithful. He's faithful. So don't give up. We can hold fast to the hope we have in Jesus. And then in verse 24, it says this, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what are those key phrases in there saying? It's saying this, consider, don't neglect, be encouraging. All those things are, they're pointing to this, the idea of rethinking, which we know is the same word as repent, rethinking or coming up with a new strategy for life. See, we have a chance down here to rethink what it looks like to do life together. This part of the letter, and this part of this letter called Hebrews is this, it's three more applications off of that very idea. So Hebrews is saying, share life with people around you. Look for people who are like you, who are struggling. Maybe their struggle is different, but they, they have a struggle and do life with them. And there's three things that it says this. The, the first one's this, and we looked at it, so I'll do this one quickly. Number one is this. We can approach the throne of God with confidence. See, access to the king comes through, from the high priest Jesus, who ushers us to high places that are reserved for the most important people. I was watching Peyton Manning's press conference after, I think it was after the, the AFC championship game. I don't know, some of you guys probably saw this. And his son was hiding at his feet. Did anybody watch this? So Peyton Manning's at this podium and his kid's head keeps popping around the corners and it was really cute and stuff like that. But I kept thinking, who else gets to do that? Peyton Manning, this guy that everyone loves, that, that you know, is really good at football or was really good at football. He's standing there and he gets to address this crowd and his kid gets to pop out around the corner. Who else gets to do that? Can you imagine how weird would it be if Brock Osweiler was like sitting down at his feet, <laughs> right? And he'd be like, please go to Houston. Get out of here, man. You're weird. That would just, it wouldn't make any sense for anybody other than his kid to be there. Now, my kids like to come here and show like their friends they bring with them the backstage of this place, which is not that, not that impressive, honestly, but, but it's a place that they can only get to 
or at least they think they can only get two because their dad works here, right? And, and honestly, sometimes I sit back there and I go, man, Weird Al was back here like juggling apples and being super strange and I don't even want to know what else. And I, I have a second where I'm like, man, I'm in the same room that this guy was in. It's pretty cool. But that's kind of the picture here. But on a, just an insane scale, the creator of the universe that made the heavens and the earth, that made us, he allows us access to him. Behind the curtain, behind the veil, behind everything that we ever thought we couldn't have, he lets us see him. Second is this, too. We must hold fast to what we believe, to what Jesus teaches. Or another way of saying it is this, is that we must persevere even in a world and a culture that is increasingly hostile to the message of the cross, to who Jesus is, that discounts the power of what the cross did. And even in the, in the face of, of, honestly, the enemy of Satan's work in our own lives that wants to discourage us, make us believe these negative messages about ourselves and hang our heads. More than that, and, and the times when we're most desperate and lost, what are we holding on to? When our world is crumbling, what are we holding fast to? So there's this time in my life, I knew who Jesus was. And I was following after him. And sometimes it was clumsy. And sometimes I even knew I was floundering. It was like my four-year-old playing Trivial Pursuit. But he's not dumb. He's just four, right? I'm not, I'm not a bad person. I'm just human. See, my confidence was almost non-existence. And it was amazing how quickly I would respond to, to threats by retreating into a shell and trying to shut the world out first and then God out second. I'm still like this. When I'm threatened, I don't want to be stirred up. I don't want to confide in people. I don't want to be my best. I don't want to allow God to give me any kind of assurance or confidence. But this time, I was about 21. I had to quit a job at a church that I really loved because of what I was talking about earlier. People telling me, man, Christians aren't like you. You have piercings and you laugh too much. You laugh at your own jokes, which I do. And, and, and you're just not, you're not the kind of person that we can see being here for a long time. I was chased out of this place that meant so much to me. And some of you, I'm sure, can relate to that on, on some level. And at the same time, I had a girlfriend that broke up with me. I spent the next several months isolating myself, retreating to despair and letting my faith lose confidence and my assurance lose steam. I felt like God was so far away and that people that I could trust, they were even further away. And I desperately wanted to feel God's presence again, but I was so shaken and torn down that I just kept putting myself on an island. I felt lost at sea, like I was being battered, I have this one real distinct memory of laying on the, the floor of my apartment and looking up at this aquarium that I had. And these fish were swimming around. And I thought, man, is this it? Just staring at this water filtering over and over again. Is this what life's about? See, I lost confidence in my faith, not in God. I lost confidence in my faith, not in Jesus. But that Jesus was really there for me. That's what I lost confidence in. And his prom that his promises were true and that they were good. See, Jesus was distant and I'm even prone to that now in this stage of my life. Loneliness, isolation, I struggle with depression, feeling that I'm not good enough. See, I'm really, really good at isolating myself. One of my friends told me this week, you're the king of isolating yourself. You're really good at putting yourself aside on an island, pretending like nothing hurts. Even when it's affecting my marriage, my parenting, my friendships, even when it hurts me most, I like to put myself on this island because I can think this way, nothing can hurt me here. I'm alone, I can shut it out. But the thing about being on an island and living there is that you die. You know those times when you need him so much closer and that you forget that he's as close as your skin, right? And closer than that. But it doesn't feel that way, you know, because life's beating you down or it's beat you down or you're in a space where you just think it's not for me. 
And that song for me, it hits me in so many ways. That's a band called Death Cab for Cutie that I love. And I think they accidentally wrote a worship song. I think so often this concept of isolation and despair that I live in, that I'm prone to, that, that I feel like this idea of holding fast against the storm you know, at sea, in the middle of the ocean, and the storm is just beating against you. And it's like, what is my anchor? And having an anchor drop that can tether me to safety is the biggest thing that I can look for in that moment. The winds and the, and the rains, they, they hit me and they, they beat me down. But I have an anchor dropped in a place where I know I'm assured that I'm safe, even if I'm being harmed or taking hits. Scott looked at this verse a few weeks ago in depth, and it's really good. It's from Hebrews 6, 19, 20. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. The last point that he makes in this, in this part of, the, of Hebrews 10 is this. Faith is personal, but also communal. It, it's, not, it's personal, but it's not private. Even Jesus needed people around him. And you're, I mean, people tell me all the time, I'm okay by myself. And I, I want to believe in, in my own heart that I'm okay by myself. But the truth is, it's not. The internet's not a substitution from church and, 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 and we need people around us. A couple, maybe it was a month ago, six weeks ago, Scott gave this message that most of us probably saw, but if you didn't, uh, it's going to stick with me for a long time. He had like five of his friends on stage and he had them lock arms and he talked about who has a seat at his table of life. Who's making you better? Who's pushing you towards more? And it stuck with some of us because maybe it reminded us of all those people in our life that do that for us and how thankful we are for them. But for a lot of us, it kind of just reminded us that we don't have those people. And I've been hearing this from people over and over again since then. I've been trying to figure out how to get those people. I've been trying to figure out who are those people. And, and you know, for me, the way I keep looking at it is this. Yeah, I, I, maybe I have an anchor suck, stunk, uh, sunk in the sea and I really think, hey, that's going to get me through this storm. And it might, but I don't come out battered and torn up. But when I have those men around me, those people in my life around me, I can come through it in a different way. See, Hebrews, Hebrews implores us to do something about that, to, to actually make changes in our lives. Our faith doesn't just exist for us. We need one another. We need to be challenged and we need to be pushed to greater things. And we need to offer, this, to offer advice and care for other people in their times of need. The language here is, is to spur one another on in the NIV or in this translation here, the ESV, is to stir one another up. And neither one of those things is docile, right? It's not like a campfire imagery. It's almost like almost violent. It's pushing somebody physically towards something better. Doing life together in real ways where my boot and its spur maybe has to kick you towards something better or maybe you have to stir me up and get, and get me to, to move towards something better on that narrow path. We stir the waters of each other's lives to create momentum and it points to love and good works, not for the sake of being saved, but for the sake of the fact that Jesus has given us the chance to change other people's lives. I, I think that for years and years, churches have gotten this wrong they just punished people and humiliated people. And instead of trying to take people to another, into a better place, they just kicked them for wrong reasons. In Galatians, Paul says it like this, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, which is that word I keep coming back to, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are in the household of faith. Opportunity. We're six months in here into this creation of something that, that could be anything in the world. We have opportunity. You guys hopefully got a three by five card coming in here today. And this is just for you. But I want you to have a second this morning to reflect on a couple of things. So on one side of that card, hopefully you got a pen and stuff. I, wanna, I want you to think about this. 
Who do you have in your life that's stirring you up or spurring you on to better things? To use Scott's language, who's at this table of your life? Who pushes you towards better? And I'm also going to challenge you in this way. Who are you pushing towards better? Who are you making a direct and, and purposeful investment in to say life can look different than this? And maybe this morning that, that stirring means something new for you. So as you kind of reflect on that first part, my question for you is this. What's the next step for you? For some of you, it might just be like, man, I'll, I'll come back next week. I will, I will you know, struggle through that door and just find a seat and, and just get through one more week. For some of us, it maybe it means it's time to volunteer and guest services or tech or, or, or whatever that looks like. Or maybe join a group or start a group. We have some resources out there at the, at the bar uh, if you're interested in that. And maybe this season of your life, you're like, I just want to survive and that's okay. But I just want you to think about what's next for you. Some of you, maybe you're wired like me and you like to isolate. Or maybe you think, man, nobody would ever want me, right? I don't have that much to offer. I'm messed up. You have no idea. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to say it really clearly this morning. We not only want you, we need you. We need to spur each other on, to stir each other up. We need other people who challenge us in our lives. We want your brokenness here. We embrace your brokenness and we offer you to come in here because there's a ton of us that are just searching for something better and we invite you to come along with us and, and look for that with us. And maybe you're not ready for any kind of stuff today and that's okay. But I want you to know this. I'll do anything to help you connect with somebody, even if it's one other person. So you just come talk to me and we'll make that happen. Because this is the truth. Maybe you don't think it for you, but I promise you that there's somebody else that's waiting for you to lead out and take a first step. They're waiting for you. The way that you've been wired, the things that you've walked through, the brokenness that you have in your life is exactly what somebody else needs to hear. I heard this pastor named Andy Stanley. He said it this way this week. He said, circles are better than rows. And I really believe this. I believe rows are good. I think this is a good thing to do. But when you sit in a circle and look in somebody else's eyes and say, me too, life changes. So to me, it's, it's really interesting that here in Hebrews, written a few thousand years ago, it talks about how people have just kind of given up on the fact or the idea of church and they stop meeting together. They, they neglect this opportunity to worship together. I know a lot of people want their faith to be private and personal, which is great. Other than the fact of this, you're cheating yourself. And honestly, you're cheating other people too. Because when you get to that point, really what you're doing is you're just shrinking back. Like I'm prone to do and like I know so many of us are. I read an author say it this week, this, this way. It would be well if we remembered that apart from anything else, to go to church is to demonstrate where our loyalty lies, which I think is really cool. It's a once, once a week rallying call to say, this is what my life is anchored to. This is what I hold fast to in the storm is Jesus. I'm confident in him. And the other six days of the week when life falls apart and maybe I forget that he's real and he's big and, he, and, he, and he's gonna do amazing things in my life. I have this one thing that I can confide in, people I can look at that will stir me up. And I can remember for, even if it's for just that hour at first, that there is something better out there to look around that one hour every week and see other people that are willing to help you carry yourself through those other six days, to get on that narrow path instead of the easy one, the broad one. See, we're not alone. Even though it feels like it, sometimes I forget that Jesus is close and sometimes I push other people away. We're not alone. When we use these tools that are available to us, we can be confident in Jesus that he gives us a better path. He gives us a better way. And we can cast away all those shadows that try to draw us in, all those ripoffs, those forms without substance, all those things that are fake that we so often are tempted to go towards. And instead we can put our faith and our power and full assurance that Jesus raised from the dead has something better for us. 
I'm going to close up because we probably landed in a variety of places this morning. But some of us are probably in this spot where like, yeah, I want to be released from my struggles. I want to be vulnerable with somebody. I want to find that person who will stir me up and like show me how to do that. And I, I don't know, but I visited a church a few years ago and they had written, uh, they painted on one of their walls really big. It just said, it's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay like that. It's okay not to be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. And this morning, what I want to challenge us with is this. Let's not settle for being alone. Let's not settle for thinking God is distant and people are even more so. Now, I start out this morning with, a, with what I think is a pretty big question, even if it sounds basic at first, and it's this. What if it's true that God is a good father, that only he can remove our shame and make us clean? And what if it's true that, that we can find real rest in him? What if it's true that he sets us free with the same power that he raised Jesus from the dead with? What if all that's true, that he's close, that he's not disappointed in you, he's not angry with you, he doesn't look at your life and say, what's wrong with you? But he's so much closer than that. That three by five card on the other side, I have one question that I want you to reflect on. Maybe it's during this song, maybe it's as you leave, maybe just write the question down. But if I really believe all of that's true, if I really believe that Jesus is all of that in my life, where can I build confidence this week in my life? Maybe it's at work or at school, at home, in your friendships, relationships, for those of us that are married or, or, or parenting, no matter where it is, and no matter how insurmountable or difficult your circumstances seem or your problems are, and I believe that they are, how can you walk differently this week and more confidently in light of the fact that we have full assurance in Jesus and nothing else? That in Jesus, we know we are accepted and we're loved and he's gonna deliver on his promises no matter how dark that shadow is, no matter how good that form feels, no matter how much we wanna fall back on things that are fake and easy, that no matter what, that shadow is just a substance. It's just a, it's just a shadow, it's just a fake. We get real life through Jesus and Jesus only. And we get the chance to lift our head and be confident that we are his children and that he has better things for us. I'm gonna pray. God, I thank you so much for this morning, for the opportunity that we have as we stand and as we sit in this building. God, six months in, looking around at these streets in Denver and the people that are on them, the people that work down here, the people that live in the neighborhoods that surround it, God. I'm so thankful that because of Jesus, I can be fully assured, not only in who you made me, but in what my life's point is. God, I pray for all of us as we sit in this, this space this morning, trying to figure out our own specific brand of brokenness, God. The things that, that shake our confidence, that, that make us honestly bend towards being really doubtful. God, we doubt ourselves. We doubt you. We're not sure that anybody really wants somebody like us around. And God, this morning, I pray that you would take that lie out of our lives. God, that instead we look to Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would say in full assurance of who he is, that we can be closer to you. God, we can feel you and the closeness and the, the proximity that we have because of Jesus. That as we want you so much closer, and we want our life to look like something different in the middle of that storm, we drop that anchor that says, we believe that you are best and that the people around us can make us better. God, we pray we chase that in Jesus' name. Amen.